I would be doing things that are so far beyond the scope of my rank. But I would also not find myself protected when things fell short, you know. People would trust me all the way with the things that I would do, but when things went wrong, it was like there was nobody there to back you up or nobody there willing to listen. I started feeling like I was on eggshells. I started, like, muting myself a bit more. I started ghosting myself again. And that's when I was just like, oh, Jose, like, you're in trouble. If you're doing that, if you're vanishing yourself in this space after all of the work that you do. Maybe it's not such a healthy environment. Maybe it's time for you to go. That's when I left. Welcome to episode one of Are We Our Work? I'm Tiffany Ibrahim. Are We Our Work is a platform for peer exchange that gathers and shares people's career experiences across different professional networks in South Africa. In this episode, former government employee Josi Motswane retraces his process to quitting his job. Josi is now an aspiring novelist and the co-founder of Bear Stories. Ooh, ah, and the last out of, ooh, ah, and the last out ooh, and the book ooh. It's not over, babes. How are you feeling about the rugby? Um... Oh, weird. I'm, like, excited. Anything that gives me an opportunity to celebrate, I'm going to take it. Because you don't get mass celebration like that that often. So it really takes the World Cup. It takes the Rugby World Cup for us to really celebrate like this. It's nice. How are you feeling about gay pride in South Africa? What gay pride? (laughs) Not gay pride. There hasn't been a gay pride in this country in a very long time. Hi, man. You know, like, as a marginalized group that is already, like, I'm sure less than 1% of the population in this country, for that percentage to still be as fragmented as it is, is... The most devastating thing to come to terms with, especially as a queer person who comes out and thinks that, you know, you step over this beautiful threshold, rainbow threshold and then there's just going to be all of these queers waiting for you on the other side. You know the way they describe death? Because coming out is like dying, you know? <laughs> it really is. It's like... You're dying, and then on the other side, you follow the light, and you have all of these queers waiting with their arms open. Welcome, babes, we've been waiting for you. And then it's not that. So what is it? What did it's you the find? Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's hard today. Everybody's, like, armed to the T. Like, right now, pride or queerness in South Africa feels like we're... We've been too... We're trying to maintain the divisions. And what are some of the dividing factors between queer people? The one that most people don't talk about, which is the ultimate divider, is class. I think there is something that this country has never been able to really have a full conversation about. Um... The queer experience here is so fragmented in such a way that we cannot tell a queer story because 
we don't know how to remember queer stories. And, and so we're taught and we learn, maybe we're not taught, but we come to learn that like queer people are only as valuable as the income they make. And that's the most devastatingly reductive thing to be able to reduce a human being to is their income. When people say things like, you cannot be gay and broke, you have to pick a struggle. It's a whole other stigma that, you, that queer people are presenting or p- are pushing forward on other people. Is If you don't fulfill the fantasy that we're building, you don't belong here. And if you're rejected by your own community, then you have no place in the society. How did you begin working towards a career path that you believed was valuable enough to invest in? This is the year I'm 31. I was very surprised when I made it to 30. And I was just like, okay, you actually made it to 30 and you feel incredible. What now? What does the rest of your life look like? The answer was for me to be more honest about myself, to fake less. Yeah, that was the thing that made me sort of leave and decide that we're going to do the things that matter to you, that give you meaning, to fill up those gorges with things that are more me than anything else. Yeah, that's that was a big part of why I left. And I think Cape Town was a really great space for me to learn that because it was also the space where I knew nobody. Well, I knew very few people, a handful of people, um, which I'd met when I arrived here. Um, and for me to be able to have been able to sit with myself and have honest conversations about what I want to do. And then to be able to say, okay, let's try to do them. Let's just try. Let's see what happens. Having let go of your previous employment opportunities, what is the goal for you moving forward in relation to your time and your work? That was the thing that that I ultimately decided I needed the most of, was my time back. Because for as long as I could remember, I was the one who was always waking up in the morning, like everybody else, to go to school, to go somewhere, to account myself, to get somewhere where someone else will count me and say, you were here. Why I took the leap of leaving my job was because for the first time in my life, I felt like I could. I had the financial security to just be for a little while and decide what I would do with my time. After quitting my job, I realized that it's such a big thing in this world to not have a job. It's the strangest thing is that like, you're almost afraid to say it. You're almost afraid to say that you don't have a job because automatically people are going to categorize you some sort of way and it's never in the best light. People are always going to say deadbeat, broke or whatever. Not requiring any much context, but decide because... The language is constructed around that, that the person that does not have a job is not contributing any kind of valuable thing to the society and therefore is worthless. I started sort of getting the same urges around having to declare my unemployment as I did with my queerness. Like, it felt like I had to first assess if the environment was safe enough for me to say something like that. Quitting my job and 
like deciding to not have a job, to not have a place to punch in, felt so much like coming out again. The uncertainty, the fear, the shame um, was all there the exact same way that it did just before I came out. Do you have moments of regret for just quitting your job without securing the next traditional, conventional job? Not a single one. <sighs> Tiffany, the biggest fear that I have is having to resign to the fact that maybe this model, this alternative model of being, which is really outside of the scope, isn't working. And having to go back to the thing that left me paralyzed for three days in my bed, you know. And for me to go back and smile and be a professional and perform that professionalism every single day, knowing that this time around I'm fully in on the ruse and the facade and the window dressing that this is because I know that I come from a place that is the most honest I've ever been with now. myself. Now, which is now. So leaving this space is my biggest fear. It's a devastating fear. What does failure mean and look like to you? I mean, over the years, failure has come to mean various things. When I was in the thrust of the rat race, because I did that and I did it really well. When I was in the thrust of the rat race, failure meant underperforming. It meant not delivering. It meant the consequences of not delivering being losing your job or losing the momentum and the footing that you currently have, especially when you're at your peak, when you're properly peaking, right? It felt like that. And then you get over that and failure starts feeling or looking like not progressing. It starts feeling like stagnation that you're not moving, everybody else around you is moving, you failed. Um, then failure starts resembling having spent, for, for me it started looking like that, like spending my whole life working up until I get my pension and then being devastated at looking back and seeing nothing of like specific meaning to the things that I've done. And when I left that space, failure started looking like a page torn out in silence in your book and throwing it in the trash can that like, well, this is between you and me. This is between me and this page and the words that don't fit the story and that trash can. So... And that for me was the most, that's the definition I hold now for failure, is it's an experiment. It's a tearing out of a page and throwing and trying again and allowing that to be okay. What is your relationship 
with control. I went from not having any control, I felt, over my life to having maximum control when I was in that like high-performance government space where I could dictate exactly what needs to happen word for word to I think somewhere in between those two of like of just being able to say okay you recognize that you live in a world and whether you like it or not you have to participate in the things that you might not like so control those don't buy into them but don't also allow yourself to drown because you don't want to engage them and I think at the same time it's about saying you have the things that are most important to you be protective of those nurture those and anything else is tidal ebb and flow and you can't stop it from happening um for me that's what that's my relationship with control now there's some things that's like oh if someone behaves a particular way and i don't like it all i can do is go okay well that's not what i want to engage move out not necessarily go in and say this is what you should have done this is how you should have treated me you know i expect you to do this this is this is what i expect from you trying to control that thing because often you can't so there are areas that are not human where control applies and i think there are some areas which are interpersonal where you have to decide that that's your boundary you have no control over that line so keep everything in this parameter and you're going to be fine like i'm not trying to change the direction of the wind because I'm trying to plan a picnic and the wind is blowing in people's faces and that is how I used to live my life is I used to just be so like frustrated at things I have absolutely no power over and I would beat myself over for that and that would also add to like self-esteem issues it's like you're incapable of controlling this absolutely uncontrollable thing how going forward with this career path do you hope to negotiate your relationship between hope and expectation hope for me is something that doesn't have an absoluteness to it it doesn't have it's not a fact it doesn't give you a guarantee hope is the thing that you know you would like to have happen it is a desire it is an emotion i would say it's as arbitrary as that where an expectation has with it an ego like a lust for power that underpins it i think a lot of the time when we create expectations what we're also saying is these things will happen and when they don't happen there's a carnage around that there's an absolute failure around that there's a no coming back from that point around that 
And why is that such a likely trap to fall into when it comes to work? Because work, that's the language of, work, of the workplace, is expectations, is goals and targets, deliverables. A deliverable is an expectation. And if you do not deliver, you have not met that expectation and therefore you have failed. If anything, right now where I am with my work life, with my vocation, it feels like a parenting experience would. It feels like a hopeful parenting experience rather than one that's based on expectation. I have no expectation for this period in my life. If it fails, I'm going to be on some, well, you tried. That's great. If it goes well, you're like, oh, look, it's going great. That's amazing. Let's keep going. Uh, but I won't allow myself to like taint this experience by putting unnecessary expectations on it. I won't do that. What is toxicity to you? And why is that something that is so commonly associated with the workspace? Toxicity is the process for me, I believe, of continued like reduction of an individual it's when you believe you know i think we're all driven or we all at our core hold the belief that we're growing people and i think things become toxic when you stop being able to hold that belief and particularly in career environments that teach you to move upwards and forwards, it becomes toxic in two ways. It becomes toxic when you don't move at the pace that the organization wants you to move at. And so then you feel like you're not growing, but you are. That's toxic for me. The other one is you're doing so much more than you're acknowledged for. And ultimately results in the same thing. You feel like you're not growing. That becomes a toxic environment. And I think the, the formalized workspace is made up of those two things. People that will gaslight you into thinking you're not doing that great. And spaces that don't accommodate your own sort of pace of growth and don't try to nurture or create a conducive enough environment to allow that to take form. But it's often, really, it's about the leadership of the organization that determines the culture that you have in that workplace. And what does it mean when employees are not willing to fight for themselves? You know, fear is the thing that stops people from fighting, to be honest. If you have enough fear in a space people are not going to fight. But they're also not going to give you their best, you know? And if you have a space where employees are not willing to fight for themselves, you're, you're finding yourself with a dead or dying organization. Because the same thing that allows them to fight for themselves is the same thing that allows them to be creative and perform better. It's the same system. That flight or fright, what? Flight or, or fight. fight. Yes, it's the same cortex in your mind. For me, at least. And um, 
workspaces as abusive environments? Uh, more often than not, people, I think maybe second to their romantic relationships, people lose themselves in their jobs. It's always those two for me. It's a neck and neck race. You're either losing yourself to an abusive lover or you're losing yourself to an abusive job. Why do you think? They require the same level of investment. Like the demands that a lover can have on you are not that far from the demands that your job can have from you. And it's time. And it's commitment. And it's availability. But all of those things are controlled. And I think if you're finding yourself with a controlling lover, it's not that different from finding yourself in a controlling working environment. And most working environments are controlling. What did it feel like for you to be in an unhealthy work relationship? Self-doubt, that's the first sight. Things that are so that come so obviously to me, suddenly I'm questioning them. Same thing in my most toxic rela- romantic relationships it was the same thing. After self-doubt was the desire to overcome that self-doubt with overcompensation. So you end up doing more. You end up trying to prove so much more of something that you proved a long time ago, something that you've always been. You always compensate. And then the more they pull back, the more you want to give until you've burnt out and you've got nothing else to give. And so you find yourself in a space of depletion. And and then you have a low morale. And then you're that guy in the office that doesn't want to do anything, that has the same facial expression. When someone asks you for something, you're just like, no, I don't have it. And you have a dead look on your face. Is it a love of a different kind? Is it an admiration? Why do we work so hard at pleasing people in the workspace? Work environments run on the insecurity of people and the desire for them to prove their worth. That's the one thing I think a capitalist system does really good at, is say, you're only, we're going to give you the opportunity to prove your worth. Not like the footnote that you're already worthy and that you're enough. Just that if you suspect that you're not good enough, here's an opportunity for you to prove that you are. We have so many industrial complexes these days, but I think the the ego-industrial complex should be one of those terms that we talk about. Is that like a lot of the time, even your managers are taught to do that. They're taught to make you feel like you are proving yourself. If they keep that line tense enough, where you're still not sure but you know you feel like you're moving in the direction where you could be sure as long as you're there and the die is still rolling and it hasn't landed on a number then you are going to probably be the most anxious person in the organization but probably also the best performing and i think our desire to please is part of that manipulation of that is People teach you to desire, to have the desire of pleasing them. 
And it's not necessary. It doesn't start in the workplace. It starts beyond that. It starts without your own contexts. How much of the personal is mixed up in the professional context? All of it. Every single thing. Like, we believe that we've, we're torn into two. You know, we believe we have a doppelganger that enters, that steps into the workplace. But every single thing that you have, every insecurity or like lack thereof that you have will manifest itself somehow in the workplace. If you're fixating and you're obsessed with your job, you have an obsession. An obsession is not a good thing. An obsession is a, is, is a type of addiction, right? Why is that a bad thing? Why can't you be addicted to something you believe you love? Because there's always a crash with an addiction. And often the crash is like... I think I'm a believer in... I believe in an ebb and flow. I believe in like a... In a balanced... I believe in balance. I believe in equilibrium. And... There's a danger there. Because at some point that road ends. And when it ends... Where are you going to find yourself? And for me, that's the thing that, like... I mean, if it's okay for some people, so be it. But it's not necessarily where I find myself. Because I know what that feels like. To put in the hours, to work day and night, to not sleep. And then to be able to brag about the fact that you didn't sleep. It's not healthy, you know. And you find in yourself, you know, validating things that are not great for your own well-being um, because they're the only things that you can justify putting yourself through what you're putting yourself through. So like what? What are people sacrificing by overworking? Their bodies, their relationships, the relationships they're running away from when we don't give people the option to redeem themselves we also don't give ourselves the option to heal we don't give ourselves the option to to move in a different direction not necessarily forward there's this over fixation and hyper visibility of moving forward and that's the thing that I've always wanted to sort of push back against. That, like, we're not moving along a straight line on a conveyor belt. Like, we can jump off this belt and we can discover other things. And so for me, if you confine yourself to that, if you're overworking yourself like that, you're putting the biggest limit on what your human experience can be. You're saying everything else is not as important as, as this one thing. And I'm saying that's a very difficult thing for me to come to terms with. To say that in this world that has so much, for me to choose this one thing and say that's the center of my world, I won't do it. I always say to you that like, I live my life as an archipelago with multiple islands. Um, and each island has its own vegetation and habitat. And, and so if one island goes on fire... 
I know there are oceans between the, that island and the next. And so it gives me the ease of saying, I can, I can fix this, I can work on this, I can douse this fire, knowing that every other area is okay. But if you're fixated and focused on that one thing, when that thing falls apart, when that thing stops serving you that thing, you have to come to the realization that everywhere else around you is a barren territory. And more often than not, when people get to that point, it's like they have nothing left in their lives. It's a shattering of an expectation. It's the ultimate disappointment. That's the thing I fear. Hmm. That's the thing I fear. That something becomes your everything? That one thing becomes your that everything? That one thing becomes my everything. And why are you vulnerable to that trap? Because I know I can fixate on things. And I know that my addiction is to the challenge. Hmm. And the workplace is heaven for challenges. There's always going to be a new problem. They always have it in your job description. Must be a problem solver. And when people use they know what they're doing. They're baiting you into that. And as long as you're fed problems, you feel like you're solving something and you feel like you're adding. But often people send you problems that are really, they're not really problems. They don't matter. They're just distractions. People are keeping you distracted. And then they're saying you're doing great at solving problems. Are We Our Work forms part of a long-term research project that documents career experiences and labor market practices in South Africa. If you would like to participate in the research going forward, visit areweourwork.com to find out how you can share your work-related experiences. This episode was created and produced by me, Tiffany Ibrahim. Sound and editing by Dean Salant. Recording support by Yogan Sullivan. The music is by Vuma Levin and can be found on his album called In Motion. The episode cover was designed and illustrated by Lauren Mulligan. To stay up to date on the podcast and future episodes, follow Are We Our Work on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening.